0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 120 of Dominaria's Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed magic podcast. Though this week I think we are leaning more on the competitive side than the constructed side. Um, with me I have uh, Gavin aka Alpha Frog, to talk about uh, Competitive Cube and really sort of like the rise of that as a competitive format over the last few years. Um, yeah, Welcome, Gavin. If you want to give everyone a quick intro into your competitive accomplishments, um, how you got into Cube, you know, anything you want to talk about up front here, go ahead.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm Gavin, as was stated. I was in the Magic Pro League a couple years ago. Uh, played on the Pro Tour for a few years as well. Recently, no longer qualified, so I've put my efforts toward... Fostering this cube community that has sort of grown up around me over the years, uh, we started off like several years ago, just like in random Facebook groups, posting, "Hey, I want to get a draft going tomorrow morning. Can we get eight people?" And then everybody would kind of like like the post, and sometimes we'd get eight, and then you know the next morning you'd fire. And then, as those kind of grew up in popularity, we'd have more people wanting to do it we eventually just like made a discord and started organizing through that because it was easier and it's just sort of like gotten bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where now it's like almost a institution what with the lsv videos of the cube drafts going on youtube all the time
0: yeah, when when you say this started a few years back, I the first I heard of this was during COVID. Was this something that started before that, or was it sort of like uh, an in person thing that migrated to online and then blew up from there, or was it around that twenty twenty time frame?
1: Um, I think it probably started even before then. Honestly, it's hard to track because it's just been it's like forever. It feels like, but uh, it started off with like. Uh, some of my European friends like Lampalot, Eco Baronin, and those guys were the original like idea people behind it. And uh, yeah, I caught wind of them like running drafts through Twitter. They were like, "We need more people to fire these." And as a Cuban Joyer who wanted to see if I could actually like hold my own against players who are also competitively minded i just jumped on board and i was able to compete and it made me it was like i don't know it's just such a fulfilling experience to like play against other players who are completely dedicated to winning
0: so yeah yeah I, it it's something that i don't think you see a lot in like your typical cube draft it's kind of just like we've assembled eight people and we're gonna see what happens and someone's gonna like joke draft storm but like the the try hard cube draft feels like a mix of a really fun format and the fun of competition in a way that I don't it there's it's very reliable that your cubes gonna be fun right like if you it's your fault if your cube's not fun like yeah it's no one else's fault you can't you can't yell at wizards for you know printing uh you know scam or whatever you decide to hate on that week it's like no I, I should fix this or you should fix this. Yeah, continue on. So that was was the early days, and uh, it continued on from there and sort of became, you know, this bigger institution. Um, How is it kind of, like, what has been the evolution since then? So over the... It really actually, like, exploded during the
1: COVID years, for sure, because everybody was moved online, and it was, like, a place where people could come draft. We weren't always... We haven't always been 100% focused on Cube. A lot of the times, uh, we'll be drafting, like, the current set. But it's just been a place where people can, like, accumulate and get drafts. And uh, so, like, during the COVID years, I think the main influx of people were somebody would qualify for the mocks, and they'd suddenly need a place to test Vintage Cube because the Magic Online leagues, they'll you can get to a certain level playing those, but the metagame is just entirely different because, like, if you draft a black lotus your opponent might have a black lotus or like more importantly like if you play against force of will first round if you're in a pod draft at the mocks you know that you're not going to play against force of will in the next round but in a league you might play against it so it's not even like the real experience and so players who wanted the biggest edge going into compete in the mocks where you're playing cube for thousands of dollars they need a place to to test like what they're actually going to be playing and so having A community of drafters who are happily drafting cube competitively all day anyway like it's like come on mox players come come join our ranks and so that's kind of how we grew there and then uh, as we've emerged from the covid years like lsv joined and started making videos and that just brought in so many people like all of a sudden there's these players that everybody's known forever that we thought quit that are suddenly like, Hey, I like to draft. Can I, can I join? So yeah, now it's, we have drafts popping off all day long. There's a draft going right now. I just missed.
0: Well, uh, I guess uh, the next one will probably start about when we uh, call this, you know, give or take. Um, Yeah. And it feels like this sort of almost led into what daybreak has done with the 64 player single limb cube events, because, that's kind of the same pod draft environment where you have a lot of the same things. People are playing very competitively because it actually has prizes. And, like, you see the the sort of Twitter screenshots of, like, oh, I won one of these 64-player things. And it's always like, oh, yeah, that player is very good. They win. And it's just repeatedly that over and over. Um, and I, maybe even QCon falls into that uh, a bit where it's, like, that's a bit somewhere in the border where, like, it is competitive. There is a like top sixty four cut and a winner, and someone gets the CubeCon trophy, and Reed Duke goes home with a pile of cheese. But there's also like, it, it's not designed to force you to be competitive. It's kind of an interesting in between. Uh, I know that uh, I missed the coverage last weekend, and you are pretty physically far from CubeCon and, and didn't quite make it this year. But that seems like a really interesting endeavor, and I am excited to see how that continues to go. Uh, assuming uh, not, I guess. When slash if, but more likely when it gets run again.
1: Yeah, KubeCon has just, I wanted to go last year. I really wanted to go this year.
0: I would be upset
1: if I don't go next year, is where I'm at with it. It just yeah, seems like yeah, a I'm, ton of fun.
0: Yeah, Madison's a, a nice place to go if you can physically get there. And uh, yeah, I, I know I went to back in the day, back when they hosted the, they had the pre Pro Tour draft weekends up in Madison. I went to a couple of those. And I assume that KubeCon is just uh, a bigger version of the same kind of environment. That's just like people just want to draft and they sit down and draft in some structured manner. And everyone is like in this like good mix of like trying things and trying hard. Yeah. Madison people are great. And uh, I assume that it's a a good place, you know, good structure started by them and continuing on elsewhere. So um, I guess we've talked like this is happening, but. Like what are the what are the physical logistics of doing these competitive cube drafts? Is the coordination still just kind of like someone posts and says I would like to draft, and then you find the next seven people in line? Is there like a formal queue structure, uh, like formal times? How does it work these days?
1: We have we have evolved since the early days for sure. Like I mentioned in the early days, it was just like a Facebook chat where somebody would message and we'd try to get enough reactions and. That would be very disorganized we We would run through the single limb queues, so everybody would have to like join at the same time, which is uh effort and coordination in of itself. If a random person joins, you just have to like drop and remake the queue. So from there, it was uh i mean it it works the the single limb queues are not often having like people join regularly so you can usually just find like a break where it's empty and then have everybody rush but uh we found this third-party draft site called draftmancer so shout out to them it's it's a great platform it simulates mtgo really well you can upload any any set uh it has like all of the like popular sets to draft already on there and then if you have like a cube cobra link to any cube, you can just draft that. Lots of control over how you can draft as well, like six people, eight people. It really has, like, a lot of functionality. So we would draft on Draftmancer and then just import the decks to MTGO, and then some people have bought the cube, other people have rentals. And then we just, like, play in the tournament practice rooms. Um, and... Going to, back to your question of is there a queue, this year we had a industrious individual join the Discord and offer to make us a bot. So now we have like a nice command system where you just type draft into the Discord and the bot will pop up and anybody can hit the join button and then once you have enough people you hit start and it randomizes the teams for you. It's pretty nice.
0: Okay so I guess that's the other thing is that my understanding of the early days of the single LMQs was everyone joined and then you just played and there was a 30 winner um and I think those like they've paid out like first and second or something like that so the 20 and 30 and now it looks like it's migrated to the more traditional teams uh like 4v4 or 3v3 which um do people still fire off the like um you know swiss or like single elim style or is it largely just team drafts these days
1: uh whenever the cube is on mtgo where we can do the single limbs then those still fire and that's my preferred way to do it i like the single limbs all the agency is on you you take the glory all by yourself or if you lose you don't have to let anybody down
0: if you um, lose, you can just leave. <laughs> yeah,
1: that too. Like, you draft a bad deck, you're out after round one, you don't have to play that again. Sometimes in the team drafts, you'll draft a, a stinker, and then you got to play all three rounds trying to get a win. Um, yeah. and Also, the single limbs are just, like, a fun... The, the difference between, like, a single limb and the team drafts are just, like... In the team drafts, you're thinking about what you're passing. In the single limbs, you're just trying to build the strongest deck for yourself.
0: Yeah. I. You mentioned when the cubes are on Magic Online, you mentioned drafting live sets. Um, are you typically just deferring to whatever cube is online? So if it's like the proliferate cube, that's fine. Or do people just have like, do they just go back to vintage cube, even when these alternate cubes are up?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much only vintage cube. Some of the other cubes are great, but the problem with cubes that are not, like, recurring is they don't have, like, an audience behind them, and so even if, you know, the Innistrad Horror Cube is pretty fun to play, you just don't have people who know the archetypes that well, and so people don't feel comfortable drafting if they're, like, not, you know, completely tuned in. And so that's why I think the Vintage Cube is sort of like king of all the cubes, it's because everybody is well familiar with it. It's been around for 10 years. Everybody kind of knows what's going on. There's no surprises.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. You know, people would rather like mess around in the leagues and like, oh, this is like the proliferate cube and I'm going to draft it two times ever and I would like to draft in a league to draft the like Helix Pinnacle deck because... You know, in Vintage, you've probably drafted, it. you know, over the last 10 years, 150 times, and you drafted Stupid Heartbeat Storm 40, or whatever. And you just, you have it out of your system, and it's cool when it happens, but you aren't, like, forcing it to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, whereas with the, you know, other cubes, you kind of want to get through that phase first, where you're like, oh, is this card good? What's going on? Yep. Um. So when you are doing these competitive drafts, uh, let's talk, let's talk about how cube as a competitive format sort of differs from cube as like the league or like the, you know, Friday night, eight players at the bar or someone's house kind of thing that it, it kind of typically is. Um, so like, let's, let's just use vintage as an example. Cause that's like, you know, you said it's the standard and it's also a really good standpoint because if you're talking about cube, it's really rare that someone doesn't know the vintage cube as a baseline. Um, Something that's really typical in these like highly competitive drafts of normal formats is decks tend to get scrappy. Um what does a scrappy cube deck kind of look like? Uh like what are the differences between like, oh, I've drafted a deck in a league to like I'm drafting with eight other players and scrapping for playables? What kind of things just sort of happen to the decks?
1: Uh that's a great question. So I think in general, what will happen? if you're just, like, drafting in a more casual environment in the leagues or even in the 64s, you see this a lot, where people are just going for, you know, a very, like, theme-oriented deck. Like, they'll get Tolarian Academy and they're like, okay, I'm the Artifacts theme. I'm going to try to get all of these things that go with this and they'll have, like, an idea in mind of what their deck wants to look like and it'll pretty much follow an outline. However, if you're at a table of people who are just like not going to be passing any kind of good cards and they're also going to be going for the same kind of combos oftentimes you can't even like having aspirations to do like the big lofty things of like generating infinite mana or even sometimes so much as like having you know discard outlets reanimate spells and big creatures is just too much to ask for from a table and so you'll have Players that will just default to taking cheap cards that they can cast because spending your mana early in those situations is how you win the game. It's not necessarily about doing the big thing, it's about just like affecting the board and making sure that your plays are advancing the game and trying to disrupt your opponent. Because if everybody's struggling to pull these bigger plans together, they're not going to happen as frequently. And so, if you're just able to get in there and, you know, do something at all, oftentimes that's enough to win.
0: Yeah, so you're describing, like, I I think Spell Pierce is just, like, my textbook example of this card. Like, in a, you know, league draft, if you Spell Pierce your opponent's Animate Dead, uh, you're probably afraid of the fact that they have, like, Reanimate and, like, X other things because they were the only Reanimator player at the table... Whereas in this kind of draft, um, just because it's so easy to, like, oh, I have an Archon of Cruelty, something that says discard cards, and a reanimate in my deck, that is a powerful game plan. If you have, like, a Spell Pierce for that, it's likely that, like, a huge percentage of your opponent's best part of their deck just falls apart, and, like, your random Dragon's Rage Channeler just takes it home.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, your opponent is going—oftentimes if they're doing the big thing, the opportunity cost of that is— if you disrupt it, they can fall apart like it's it's really rare to have the deck that is just doing everything and is resilient to interaction. The decks that are resilient to interaction are the ones that are just you know playing cheap threats each turn and then hoping to snowball
0: that it's kind of funny because everyone describes cube as like oh, you're building a constructed deck but it feels like this play pattern of the watered down contested cube decks is almost more like constructed where uh, the disruption and the cost comes into play a lot more um so I guess that that's kind of like the broader big picture. are there like archetypes that you try that you might draft in a league that you would never draft in this or archetypes that you wouldn't draft in a league that you would highly value here beyond like the vague spread of like draft tempo more draft combo less?
1: Well, I don't generally play leagues just because I don't like to... If I have Force of Will in my deck, I like to know that that's the only Force of Will. It, I don't know, it just it feels wrong to me when my opponent has the same cards as me in their deck and I'm playing Cube. That might just be a personal thing, but that's where I am. Um, however, if I were to answer that question, I think it would be like, in a league, I'm mostly just trying to build the big theme deck, because that's, that's what's going to be the most fun. It's low stakes. I don't really care if I lose. I just want to do like the most ridiculous cool thing. Whereas in a single limb, if I'm playing a sixty four and my goal is to win, I'm much more likely to just, you know, take whatever cheap interaction is available to me and let my deck be decided based on, you know, which cards get passed to me rather than Oh, I see this shiny toy, I'm gonna force it.
0: Okay. I think that bridges nicely to the discussion of like you're in a draft and like um, you're saying that you're you're much more passive in moving into what you move you're uh, you're getting past. Uh, do you consider the wheel more in this than others? Are you less likely to wheel cards and like kind of just you let it ride because you just don't trust anything to wheel because the good cards will be picked over? like how much do you pay attention to that um, in these drafts?
1: Uh, it's sort of like reading tea leaves in that once you, once you have like a idea of like, it's hard to know going into the draft. Like you look at your first picks, it's, it's really hard to know what's going to wheel from there. Sometimes you can make a good guess, but after the first pack and you see what cards wheel you should have, well, not always, but sometimes you can have a very strong idea of what's going to wheel in subsequent packs based on you know, the, the ideas that were coming, for example, let's say in pack one, like a goblin welder comes to me very late. Like everybody at the table had the chance to do the goblin welder thing. Nobody took it. That's like a pretty clear signal that other cards in that vein are going to come back around. Like maybe big cheap artifacts like mind slaver or something. And those cards are not necessarily desirable. In, like, your plan A. But when you get them together, they're,
0: they're definitely powerful. So,
1: that's that's the sort of thing yeah. I'm looking at
0: as far as wheels go. Yeah, as far as, like, floating something or not. Um, Are people hate-drafting in these at all? Are they ever seeing, like, uh, you know, they know they passed a Goblin Welder late and they see that, you know, late Mindslaver. Are people saying, like, oh, uh, I'm going to have to beat this Welder opponent. I'm just... I'm just off it, we're
1: done. Uh, yeah, probably not in the welder mind example specifically, yeah. but I think that, um, it, it really depends on the player and the table. But a lot of players are very hateful, and then other players are not so much. So you'll have some players that basically just take the best card out of every single pack, no matter what, and they're just never going to let high quality cards go through them. If, if there's like a card that's better than everything else, they'll just take it. And I think that a lot of... I mean, I'll even do that myself sometimes depending on how good the card is. It's just not conducive to winning to pass your opponent bombs that they're going to be able to use, especially if the card that you're getting is like not that good.
0: What What about sideboarding? Does that come into play more in these drafts? Or is it kind of just like... are Are there specific cards that become high-value sideboard cards that aren't otherwise? Or is it just kind of like you get what you get you're building your best deck and then eventually like at the end of the day if you sideboard in an extra two drop in your you know red white deck uh red white is probably a bad example but you know what i mean we're like you're like oh i'm trying to undercut my opponent that has a slightly slower bigger control deck i'm just sideboarding in a random red two drop i drafted because it can attack
1: um i mean that can always help i think the the majority of impactful sideboard decisions are like, okay, my opponent's on, you know, through the breach reanimator, I'm going to bring in my containment priest. Uh, stuff like that where you're really hitting their their overall game plan. Or like, if you're a deck that is playing bribery and treachery and you notice your opponent is on storm, like, get those out, right? They're not going to help you. So that's, that's usually where the sideboarding comes into play. It's like when your deck isn't set up to face your opponent's deck because your opponent is doing something that isn't, you know, like a normal strategy. Um, Like, if you have a lot of removal and they don't have creatures, you just want to, you basically are trying to replace your dead cards with more active cards.
0: Yeah, I guess my, to like, sort of wrap this all up, like, are you valuing Containment Priest more highly in these drafts because of that? Because you, like, have some expectation, or are you just kind of seeing where it goes? Like, Are there any sideboard cards that just become higher value in this sort of single elim I'm going to have to play against the best of the whole table and not just like three random decks uh, set up?
1: Um, I think a lot of the time when you're getting your sideboard cards, it's a matter of how do I put this? as as you alluded to earlier in the competitive drafts it's often difficult to pull together like a ton of great cards like oftentimes you'll even be struggling for enough playables to put a deck together so having sideboard cards can be a luxury so i would i would say that a lot of the times you don't really have a choice as to what your sideboard cards are so it doesn't come up very often where you're like oh i'm going to take this to have in my sideboard it's usually a matter of oh this is the only card that i can play and then it might end up in your sideboard or not. Containment, pretty specifically, is a pretty good main deck card anyway.
0: Okay, so it, it sounds more like people are spending their non-playable picks more on like speculating their way into a more powerful option that doesn't pan out, as opposed to finding sideboard cards. Yes. Um and I guess we, we already started touching on this on, like, the disruption is better and the, the linear, like, heavily linear plans are worse. Are there any, like, specific sort of tempo-oriented cards you want to call out that are uh, better in these sort of environments beyond, like, the one I said of, like, Spell Pierce is really good?
1: Um, Just anything that affects the board for cheap, instance better. Uh, I had a conversation earlier today about... How much I appreciate Forked Bolt and Arc Trail, for example. Just cheap cards that can give you a 2-for-1 early and, you know, waste up all your opponent's mana is pretty nice.
0: Yeah, I I think you mentioned Burst Lightning as a card that I know I just don't see in packs unless I'm drafting Mono Red. But you were saying like it's a relatively high-value card in a lot of these situations. Um, yeah, I think that, like, is it mostly spells or are like some of the cheap creatures higher value as well?
1: Well, like Ragavan for sure. And then moving into cards that might not be so obvious, like stuff like Thieving Skydiver goes way up, like in a league, I'm probably not going to care about drafting Thieving Skydiver that much, but in a competitive draft, it's actually like a pretty high pick because the scariest decks that you're going to play first will contain Moxes and Soul Rings and stuff. So if you can take those it's a huge swing um okay i think that a lot of in in the same vein a lot of the times uh if you're drafting in a more casual environment you'll decide what you want to draft based on you know the big haymaker cards that you get you'll open a gristle brand and you'll be like okay i want to be reanimator i think in a competitive environment it's more prudent to decide what you want to draft based on like what cards you can cast that are getting passed around. Like if if there's a lot of cheap red removals getting passed around, like burst lightning, it's probably better to just get into the deck that has all the cheap one mana burn spells, even if it's like not as appealing as putting a gristlebrand into play. The consistency of just always using your mana in the early turns is often enough to push the advantage enough, like that you'll win.
0: Yeah, um, I guess I, I do want to call it two specific cards in Wasteland and Stripmine. Are those just, like, way better in this environment than otherwise?
1: Yes, and not only because... It's, like, not only because those cards are very good at just... Okay, sometimes your opponent has a bad draw that is relying on this Triome, and you just get rid of it, and then you win the game on the spot. I think the value of that goes up. And then also on top of that... In these, in these environments, cards like Crucible and Raminap aren't necessarily high picks. So if you get an early Wasteland or Strip Mine, it's a lot. It might be a lot easier to get into, like the really broken combo decks where you're using Fast Bond and Crucible and Zuran Orb and getting infinite mana and really doing all the crazy things.
0: Yeah, I this is kind of like the general draft experience these days where you are. It's, you don't want to take two cards that, like, two cards that do a broken thing together are good, but a card that is good with another card that turns it into a broken thing is better because you just have a good card in your deck. Yes.
1: I think that the highest Um,
0: picks in the game are cards like that, like Shieldred
1: and Bowmasters. It's like, those cards are very good on their own, and then you can pair them with any of the draw sevens, and then you're just winning the game on the spot a lot of the time, and then the draw sevens are also good on their own. And they draw you into them. Yeah. Masters and Shieldreds. So it's
0: like. Just having everything. That feels like it's been a consistent trend with those specific cards. Like, not just those, but like Hull Breacher when it was around and like Narset. Like, just. They're good cards and they just make something else better. Um, and the Draw Sevens are also good cards in their own right. So, uh, yeah. Definitely like. I've seen it's pretty reliable to see people like when they're posting like this is a good blue deck it just it just has that going on because it's just such a powerful interaction um and then I guess moving out of the draft portion into the games are there are there things you feel just kind of flow differently in the games where two competent uh, players with you know a sort of idea of what's going on happen I know I know you've mentioned a lot about like if you have force will, you don't have to play around their Force of so Will, and that's a big change from leagues. Are there any things that are, like, you've noticed the more skilled players kind of gravitate towards that change the patterns of cube games?
1: Um. Yeah, I think that in an environment where both players are, you know, they have good decks and they know what they're doing, a lot of the times games will come down to, like, really minor technical things where it'll be something as like for example earlier today i uh i wanted to uptick my liliana to make my opponent discard a card so i had to play my last card out of the hand and it was a chandra so i play the chandra i uptick the liliana make him discard. they have one card left and then i wasn't thinking so i just upticked the chandra and then attacked And they had Restoration Angel as their last card, and if I would just, like, not upticked the Chandra and saved it, I would have easily won the game. But instead, like, I lost six or seven turns later to a string of, like, really strange top decks. And it's just, like, small sequencing things like that tend to decide more games than in a league where oftentimes mistakes like that don't matter at all because you're just going to win anyway.
0: Yeah, the shift from, like small ball more like disruption and singular threats like that is going to present those more often than like when you put a gristle brand into play you just have so much room for gross error like you are up so many cards and so much life that it takes a really specific set of things for the minor misplays to add up um yeah so i mean it just sounds like it they you know it's cute but the games are also better and more interesting and more difficult um you mentioned a lot of these, like, little traps, and you mentioned, like, Rester Angel. Are there any other common ones that come to mind that are worth kind of knowing before you run into them head first because they seem to happen a lot? Yes.
1: Uh, in fact, you were just mentioned the Strip Mine and Wasteland. One of the things that always comes up in the early turns is, do I, like, if it's a team draft, do I know where the Strip Mine and Wasteland are? Because if it's on my team, suddenly I can sequence my lands however I want. But if I don't know where the wasteland or strip mine is, it's very like often like you don't want to play the ostensible best land because you could get blown out. So you always have to think about: Does my hand get blown out by strip mine or wasteland, and can I sequence in a way where it doesn't, without you know hurting my game plan? And so yeah, I think uh, leading on the fetch land is one thing that comes up a lot, just to make sure that you don't get your land your land destroyed right away um knowing what kind of counter magic your opponent might have especially in the team drafts again it's like if you if your teammate just played against them and they lost because the enemy had mana leak and force of will definitely want to know that so it's important for uh teammates to communicate which cards to play around
0: yeah that's interesting the the counter magic especially is a category where like Crossing things off, like playing around uh, miscalculation versus playing around forcible is just two very different things. So knowing like, oh, I played against forcible in the first round. What blue cards do I have to think about in the last round is pretty important. Um, Two categories of cards, I guess sort of like two and a half, uh, that I kind of want to ask about. Uh, First off, Lurrus. I know that is a card that in less contested drafts ends up being really powerful and you have a lot of room to maneuver it. How often are Luris decks showing up in these uh, drafts? Or are people just playing Luris because it's a good card?
1: Um, There are definitely Luris companion decks, and people are also playing Luris as a good card. I am not the best person to talk on this because I have not had the same success as players like Tristan or Carl uh, Terabat, if that's a more familiar name. Um, Those players tend to pull it off just better than me. They have a better fundamental understanding of what they need to do to get it to work. Uh, the times that I've tried it, I found my decks to be lackluster. I just need I need my Glory Bringers and my Thundermaw Hillkites to win.
0: Yeah, the, the expensive cards are powerful. And then the other is, I guess, two of almost the same of... Uh, how good are the green Mana Dorks and then the Talismans or... Uh, whichever the current iteration of the cube has decided on any given time uh i know those are cards like the the talismans are often like magnifiers for your other fast mana and the the power level of the green one drops is often like heavily debated and varies week you know change to changing cube how have those felt any different in uh in these contested drafts and these competitive drafts
1: uh yeah my opinion on green has changed quite a lot um there is a certain type of green deck that has become a trap over the years that used to be very powerful, where you're just taking you know, Ruffelos, any green mana dork, and you're just ramping up to Craterhoof Behemoth. But games don't go long enough for that to be consistent enough to be very good anymore. It can still win, and I'm not saying that if you're ramping out Craterhoof that you're just going to lose every time, but... Um, I think that the dedicated mono green decks that are just trying to get ahead on mana early and cast big things tend to fall short because decks have good interaction and sometimes the threats are cheaper now. So the, the advantage of like ramping out something big, it's like I'm playing a seven drop, but my opponent's four drop is actually maybe even better. Like if it's a Minkskin Boo, for example. So I think that green players have had to sort of adapt and lean into where the strength still exists, which is in things like natural order or mana fixing, because, you know, like a one drop into an Oko is still a very strong strategy. It's just, I, I feel like, you know, going one drop and then two more mana dorks and then you know, you try to play your 4-drop and then your 8-drop, that plan doesn't necessarily come together as as much as it used to.
0: Yeah, I think the thing you highlighted about the the power coming down the curve is really important, where, like, uh, when you are playing Birds of Paradise, it should be because you have a 3 or 4-drop you would like to cast early, and not because the vague concept of, I'm going to cast the card that costs 6 to 8 mana, and that's good enough because it's just not better than the thing that actually costs four. Um,
1: Yeah, I think that the best green
0: decks are just,
1: you know, they're using the Llanowar Elf to cast, like, an Asika's Chariot or a Minkskin Boo, and then, or, like, Olvenwald Oddity is another good one, Questing Beast, and then you're just trying to end the game really quickly. Uh, One of the cards that I really love using is Orcish Lumberjack. I always joke that it's just Black Lotus every turn.
0: Yeah, I, that card is, uh, it has its diehard fans over and over, and it's very well deserved. It's kind of a pretty messed up card.
1: Yeah, if you can make it work, you're just, you know, casting your five mana dragon on turn two or whatever big thing, and then follow that up with any other big mid range threat, and it's going to be really hard for your opponent to come back.
0: So I think we're starting to get into the, like, uh, structural like big picture like how you cube are there any tips that you would give players who are familiar with the vintage cube but trying to break in beyond kind of what we talked about of like the powerful threats are like moving down the curve and more individual and the disruption is really good like what things do you see people repeatedly falling into the traps and losing because of when they start down you know playing these competitive uh drafts
1: yeah i think one of the things is you have to find like the middle way, I guess is probably the best way to put it where it's really easy to get distracted by, Oh, okay. I have to get something powerful. Like a a common thought is if you're playing vintage cube, you have to do something broken. And oftentimes it's better to just, like I was saying earlier, just to have plays each turn. On the other hand, it can go the other way where somebody is so focused on just curving out every game. They don't see when the big broken decks are available to them and they'll just pass them by. So it's, it's important to be able to like adapt to what your seed is offering you. And then, Oh yeah. Another thing that'll happen is you'll get, uh, attached maybe too much to your like first few picks and maybe try to too hard to make those work. It's it's just it's important to to like allow things to happen rather than to try to make things happen. It's like in any draft, it's probably like it's probably likely that you're going to have access to a good deck. It's it's very rare that your seat isn't going to have enough cards to make something happen. So, it's mostly about tuning in To the best thing that is happening for the seat that you're at, and then getting that, rather than knowing, you know, the best strategies and getting into
0: those. Are there any individual cards that you sort of ignore that for and shoehorn in if you pick them early? Like, the obviously the best like ten cards in the cube are effectively colourless, but are there any cards that aren't that you just kind of say, well. I took this. I'm not drafting the archetype, but I just I just need to get this card in my deck.
1: Yeah, like fourth Yorlingus, Minxkin Boo, um, to a lesser extent, Oko. Fury is another one. Fury is just really good. Uh, Solitude. Do you feel the same way about that card? Used to. I've I've moved down on Solitude just because lately I feel like. I mean, white is very good, but um, I think in. The metagame that I'm playing in a lot of the time, white, gets overdrafted. So I tend to just kind of let those cards go. And I feel like like if you have all the good white tempo, if you're getting the Swords to Plowshares and the Palace Jailer and stuff to go with your Solitude, it's really broken. But I find that a lot of the times, if that stuff is all getting you know, eaten up by other players, it's best to just let them fight over it.
0: Yeah, white in this cube is kind of a color where it's really hard to just, like, have seven white cards in your deck and feel happy about it, whereas red, it's really easy to imagine a red deck where you just have, like, Lightning Bolt, Fury, and five random red cards, and you're like, yeah, that's great, so yep. fury is just going to be in my deck. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, This, like, you're kind of describing some of the stuff where it's, like, finding that middle ground and being open that that's like a very reminiscent of, you know, if people have less experience Q drafting, but drafted the original Modern Horizons. It feels like it's a lot in the same vein. That's like one of my favorite formats of the last few years. So yeah, that, you know, competitive Q draft feels like it is uh, really harnessing the best of the best draft formats of all time, but in a way that is letting you play with a broader variety of cards and uh, sort of different stuff. Um, and I guess one final thing, like, for people who are playing, you know, joining the cube, and they, you know, you sit down against LSV in your first match, what is the advice you give the player trying to beat LSV in that spot, besides go back in time and make sure you drafted a good deck?
1: Um, well, the best way to beat stronger players is to use your mana every turn, because if they stumble, they'll probably lose. And then... Other things you can do is like introduce variance into the game, because variance will favor you. Uh, if if they're gonna outplay you, and then you can suddenly make the game more random, then their chance to outplay you is diminished. So, if you want to play, if you want to beat uh, a stronger player, then maybe draft a deck that you know isn't that is very strong when it has its you know when it, when the things work out, but maybe. It's not the most consistent. So, like a deck like Reanimator or Sneak Attack or like Flash, where if you draw your combo, it's going to be really hard for them to beat you. And yeah, you just, you don't want, you want to reduce the amount of decision points if you're up against a stronger opponent because they're going to make better decisions than you on average. So, if you can just take away those decisions, then you're going to have a better chance to win because it's going to come down to more about who draws better.
0: Yeah, I, I think the phrase I want to use to caveat that is finding profitable spots to in, introduce variants where, like, you know, if you draft a flash deck that is only going to do its thing one out of every four games, like, that's really bad. But, like, I'm just... um, I'm thinking of something that comes up a lot where, like, imagine your deck has Dark Ritual in it, and you have the option of just, like, I'm just going to Dark Ritual... Sh- like, my opening hand just says Dark Ritual and children. And you can play it on turn two or you can try to extract, like, this longer game. There's decent value of just shoving and just, like, seeing if the game resolves itself at that point. If you are, like, afraid of trying to line up the long game against a better player. Like, that's it's not a bad play. It's just the higher variance play. And if you need the higher variance to make that happen and it's just kind of like, you know, one of these plays might be marginally better. But the higher variance play is the one that sort of locks in your percentage versus potentially... Uh, spewing away a bit of it every single turn. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So like play good and be less afraid of taking smart, smart risks. Um. I want to loop back to something you kind of mentioned about people playing other cubes or like focusing on the vintage cube. Do you all make modifications to the last vintage cube list at all when it's not up or do you just kind of play it as is?
1: Oh, yeah, uh, we don't actually draft the MTGO Vintage Cube. We draft my own version of it. Um, effectively, over the years of drafting the Vintage Cube, like there's a very common thread of what are these cards doing in the cube? Um, I think that in recent updates to the MTGO Vintage Cube, a lot of the cards that have uh, worn out their welcome, so to speak, have left the cube, but there's still plenty of those. And uh, the goal of my cube is to not have any pack filler, so to speak. Just like, I just want cards that somebody is going to want. It might not be somebody in that draft, but like they're good in a deck. So I I feel like there's there's still a few cards that are you know kind of bad, but they're fun still. And but the amount of cards that you look at in a pack and you're like, who would ever want to play this? Like that just that's the that's the main difference to me is like I I tried to get all the feedback from people and be like, okay, which cards do you not like seeing in packs? What would you rather have? And so I think there's about 10 to 15 cards different uh, per color in my cube where it's just like the bottom 15 cards are replaced with either archetypal support or combo cards or just better cards in general.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna ask you for I guess sort of three examples, uh, or example of three different things, which are like, one, uh, what is the card that you have added to the cube that has kind of cycled out of the Magic Online Vintage list that you think is pretty important and upgrades the competitive draft experience a lot? Two, what is a card that has been cut from the Magic Online Vintage cube in your cube just because people are sick of playing against it and you think it, the cube is just a better experience without it? And three, what is an example of, like, one of the worst pack fillers? So let's actually let's work backwards. So, like, when you say pack filler that just is cut that no one would ever play, what is the card that immediately springs to mind for you?
1: Um, Let's see. Paradoxical outcome. <laughs> uh, although I guess some decks that, that is do use that one. Uh, Jadar, Ghoulcaller of Nephalia. There's that's one that kind of raises my eyebrows whenever I see that one. It's like I don't know what deck that one's for. Um, Call of the Ring. Uh, the red, the red rituals like Desperate Ritual, Pyretic Ritual. It's like the those used to have a deck, but there's just no deck for them anymore. Empty the Warrens isn't in the cube anymore.
0: Ooh, yeah, that, that's not a good overlap.
1: Uh, there's like a handful of like green dorks that are just like. Expensive green creatures that don't really do a whole lot. Is Primeval Titan one of those? No, is no, it no. Workshop Primeval War Titan Chief? puts Dark Depths and Thespian Stage into play.
0: Okay, that's true. That's true. um Okay, moving to the second category. Are there any cards that you have cut that are just because they're obnoxious too good people just don't want to play against them anymore?
1: There's only one card, and that's White Plume Adventurer, and that one just like sparks a whole lot of debate. Uh, Some people really like it, other people don't really care, and some people really, really hate it. And I had it in my cube for a while, and it's just like, when it was in the cube, I would get a few complaints every week, and at some point I switched it for Seasoned Dungeoneer. And the one extra mana, I think, is just the balance that people needed. I haven't had complaints about the initiative mechanic since. Um, The only other card that maybe fits that category is Time Vault. But honestly, I think the the reason that I don't include Time Vault is because you have to add other additional support that's not very good. Like, I don't want to have random untap effects in the cube that only work with Time Vault.
0: But yeah, those, those are the two yeah. most
1: powerful cards that aren't in the cube, I think.
0: Fair enough. Uh, and I guess the third category is, is there a card that you have added in that has cycled its way out of the Vintage Cube, but you think uh, makes for a much better competitive draft experience than uh, it previously has advertised, like something that has made its way back on it.
1: Yeah, uh, there's there's a few cards. The Vintage Cube on MTGO has cut Winter Orb recently. I think that card is just... It's pretty good. You you have Urza, so you can tap it, and it just, like, fits into those, like, Talarian Academy decks pretty well. Um,
0: That, that speaks right to me, man. I, I You know... Back in the day, I was acquiring people in Vintage Cube, and I just love any game where you just win a roar, and there's like, what? What am I supposed to do? It's like that. That's what the card does. Good luck.
1: <laughs> yeah, I uh, for the most part, I think that the cards that have been removed from the Vintage Cube, like there's not really anything that's like super egregious that they cut out. My cube still has Bergy, God of Storytelling. I feel like that's a nice combo card that is underutilized. I don't blame them for cutting it if people weren't drafting it, but my people definitely draft it and get good use out of it still. Uh, oh, yeah, the Vintage Cube has cut Bribery and Show and Tell, which I think is just its just not right. <laughs> the Vintage Cube Bribery is so iconic. Show and Tell is just a classic vintage card. Yeah. Whole uh, Breacher is another one. Where it was deemed too unfun for MTGO, but like honestly, if you've ever cast a Hole Breacher and then a Time Twister, how can you tell me that's not fun?
0: Yeah, it, I don't really understand how that is not fun, but Shouldered is. So I get what you're saying.
1: Yeah, the, the, those are the ones that I, I'm like looking over the comparison of the cubes,
0: but yeah, that that's the
1: main uh the differences. My cube also has Gifts Ungiven. Which, again, I don't really blame MTGO for cutting that one. It eats up a lot of time as people decide what their piles are, and it's not clear how it's good in any... Like, in every single deck, it's going to be different, so it just requires a lot of uh, bandwidth in order to cast that card, so don't really blame anybody for not wanting to have that around. But I like it. I like tanking for five minutes while I figure out my pile.
0: And then your opponent tanks for five minutes when they think about like what you actually want from the pile. Yeah. yeah, yeah, That that is definitely an experience that is more fun on the like small scale when you aren't asking thousands of people, but you're asking you know fifty to one hundred people to buy into that experience. That that definitely makes a difference there. Um, I guess I want to talk about you know the design of like, are there any non vintage cubes that have become or have been notably good for this kind of experience or have you just you know you said everyone sort of defaults to the vintage cube but are there any ones you want to call out
1: um i loved pretty much all the cubes that were like the original mtgo cubes so like their legacy cube was great um it's just that none of those got like they haven't been updated in long enough that Uh, The updates that have happened to them have sort of been haphazard and they've lost the focus. So it's, and it's also just difficult to get, like I said, it's hard to get people to draft anything other than vintage cubes. So I don't think that there's anything in particular. I mean, I love all the, all the cubes and I try to draft everything, but to get eight people to draft a non-vintage cube is just, it's, it's pretty hard.
0: Got it. This sounds like a question better directed to Dom when he gets back uh, and gets to talk about his experiences at CubeCon. Um, talk about the, the non-vintage side of things as people draft Boat Cube or whatever they were doing out there.
1: Yeah, the, the different non-vintage cubes are much better suited for like convention magic, where you just it's easy to get eight players and nobody really cares what they're drafting, they just want to draft. And then... The random non-vintage cubes are much more palatable but online where everybody has a million different ways to spend their time people just want to do the thing that they find the
0: most fun yeah that makes a lot of sense um if someone say had a consistent group of eight local friends who would you know for example want to sit down and team draft to see who pays for the pizza. Are there any things you would recommend if they were trying to dodge a vintage cube to consider in building their cubes?
1: Like, for non-vintage cubes, or...?
0: Yeah, for non-vintage cubes. Are there things you would recommend to people who are trying to move away from the Mox uh, Lotus experience but are still trying to maintain the competitive cube environment? Yes. So, one of the...
1: Best things, I think, about Vintage Cube is it withstands power creep better than any of the other cubes. Like, when you're adding all of the Modern Horizons cards, Modern Horizons 2, Lord of the Rings cards, they sort of just slot in alongside the already extremely powerful things. Like, they're not going to print a card that is better than Ancestral Recall or Time Walk. So, whenever they print cards that are, like incredibly broken like the one ring or bow masters or fury instead of completely warping the power level of the cube when you add it to the vintage cube it sort of actually balances things a bit because the most powerful things are already so warping that it's like hard to make it more unbalanced if anything it just gives more players access to the powerful things so that everybody's on a level playing field whereas if you're doing a modern cube and then you want to add all of your favorite cards from Modern Horizons. Those are going to outshine all of the other cards that you have in your cube by so much that the players who have access to them in the draft are just going to win a lot more than the players who don't, and it leads to unfun game experiences. So you have to be really careful about the balance of things when you're doing a non-vintage cube, and you don't want to like accidentally like turn it into a lottery of who opens the most new cards
0: yeah that, that sound would you describe that as like the first thing you should think about when you're making a competitive cube of any type is define what your most powerful cards are and make sure that those are fun to cast and that you don't accidentally sort of creep those out of the environment.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to identify like a good average power level and then try to build towards that. Because if you're just adding, like, the best cards or your favorite cards, it's just really hard to have a cube where, you know, the person who opens up Fable and Fury and Shieldred doesn't just, like, run away with things.
0: Yeah, I believe, uh, you know, a friend of the show, Lee McLeod, was talking about on uh, his pod this week, getting balanced out of a cube in at CubeCon where he was just like, there's a balance in this? That, that's not good.
1: Yeah, Balance is uh, definitely one of those cards that c- c- when you're comparing casual environments to competitive environments, the card is largely ignored in casual environments and is one of the most desired cards in the competitive.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that is about all I had kind of, you know, lined up about cubes in general. So I I kind of want to badge you with more questions about, you know, you've played a lot of cube, probably played more cube than the majority of people listening to this. I'm kind of interested with, you know, here's your personal opinion. So I I got three questions up front about, you know, if, you know, this is probably the same thing I just asked, but your favorite cube, it sounds like is the vintage cube. Um, If that's not the case, what is your favorite cube? And if it is the case, what's your second favorite?
1: Um, Vintage cube is definitely my favorite, specifically my vintage cube. Um, I think that the other cubes I've really enjoyed, like I mentioned earlier, the Legacy Cube is really fun. Um, let me shout out David McDarby's Living the Dream Cube. That one is awesome. I had one of my most fun cube experiences playing that where I had, I forget what the card is called. I think it's Cascading Cataracts where all of your spells have Cascade. Oh, Maelstrom Nexus? Yeah, me yeah. Maelstrom Nexus. Yeah, Cataracts is the land. Anyway, so I didn't have any permanents in play and I was facing like a pretty daunting board and I drew Coalition Victory. And so I just like cast it and cascaded into a five color
0: creature to win the game. Okay, that is pretty awesome and probably impossible. Like, yeah, no one can win with Coalition Victory anymore because it's on the EDH ban list and then you aren't allowed to cast it anywhere else for other reasons.
1: So yeah, I think. Yeah, that cube was really good because it it uses it, it it balances the new cards really well. Like the best things to do in that cube are casting ridiculously expensive cards. So if everybody is like forced to do that, then things are more balanced than if, you know, somebody has access to all the cheap good stuff. Um I, I I always love the the MTGO Legacy cube, just like ramping out Planeswalkers. That's really fun, and then really low power cubes like Popper cubes. Those uh always have a near and dear place to me because you get to play with like all the old classic cards like Wild Mongrel.
0: Yeah, the, Wild Mongrel is really a classic. I people have been sharing like discussing like circular logic and arrogant worm randomly recently and i'm just like oh man i mean, i do miss the the aquamila wild mongrel days that that deck is just not really not really easy to fit into a cube but really a delight um, what are your favorite cards to put into cubes or like in the vintage cube
1: um i'll talk about some of the ones that i found through my research I uh, Since I started designing the cube, the first thing I did was just, you know, did a major overhaul. I just cut all the cards that people kind of agreed were bad and added cards that were, you know, suitable to replace them. It wasn't like a huge uh, project. It was just sort of a functional rehaul or overhaul. But then as I, the feedback I got was just overwhelmingly positive and people were encouraging me. So I'm like, all right, I I could get used to this. And so I just started like looking over all the lists on Cube Cobra and going over every commander set and just looking through all the cards and trying to find like all-stars basically that hadn't been identified yet. And so I found Currency Converter, which is really fun. Uh, For those that aren't familiar, it's a 1-mana artifact that whenever you discard a card, you can exile it. And then for 2-mana, you can draw and discard. And then you can also just tap it to put any of the exiled cards into your graveyard. And then lands make treasures and non lands make 2 when you do that. And the card is just like really nice because for one mana, you slip it into play basically anytime. And then when you cast Faithless Looting, then suddenly you're getting free treasures and 2 So it's like rewarding you for playing cards that are already good. It like helps you generate value when you're just like digging through your deck. Really love that card um coveted jewel is another one that we just added where it's like six mana when it enters the battlefield draw three cards it's an artifact that taps for three mana of any color but if your opponent attacks you and you don't block they gain control of it in the cube i try to just pair it with like displacer kitten you can draw through your deck pretty easily um let's see i know there's some other ones that i've found comet stellar pup is a funny one Another commander card. I'm not going to go through the text on that one. Oh, Torsten is like probably the best card. Uh, my friend Jacob found that one is and pointed it out to me. Torsten. It's basically a track. So, oh, is this the eight drop? It's a Selesnia seven drop. It's a seven-seven. When it comes into play, you reveal the top seven cards, and you can put any of the creatures or lands into your hand. And when it dies, it makes seven one ones. So it's just great with Flash,
0: Sneak Attack, Through the Breach. Good with Natural Order. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, that is a card that I have seen people mention a lot recently, and I've just not read the text because I haven't been put into a context where I needed to. But yeah, that that is effectively another Atraxa. Um, and then, final question here. Are there any decks or cards that you know you shouldn't be drafting, but you just... You just they just end up in your pile. You don't really know what happened, but how, you know how did they get there? Like anything, you just can't keep yourself away from.
1: Uh, I'm a particular sucker for the lands combos, so you know fast bond strategies, crucible of worlds. Um, even even as janky as like life from the loam. Uh, another one. Like I can't I can't really pass in a Telerian Academy. It's just too much fun to try to <laughs> untap it with Candelabra or something. Get a retrofitter foundry going. Same with like Urza. I'm I, I just really love the, the artifact piles because generating a ton of mana and then, you know, casting a time twister is just it's just the most fun
0: magic in my opinion. Fan of Dark Depths? I
1: do love the Dark Depths decks. Um I feel like I'm pretty disciplined about those. I tend to just draft it when it's good, and usually when I'm playing it, it's like the correct thing to do. I would hope. I think uh, I maybe take Primeval Titan too highly, actually, as a sort of uh, adjacent to that, because I just love the like Primeval Titan is is just the best, the best vibes for me. It it unlocks all of your top end. It's like a pretty good card if that's if that is your top end, it can just take over the game by itself. It's like it gives you access to all kinds of combos if you have Sheldock Isle in your deck or cradle or even the academy. it's just it's just such a great card.
0: It's kind of funny because that that is a card that I have spent such a long time hating on. and it feels like you mentioned like oh, it enables all these land things. That's, like, finally the first thing, like, I think people just kind of put it into their decks for a long time, assuming that casting Titan and getting lands was good, and it just, it never was. But when you get specific lands, it starts becoming like, oh, this card, it's a tooth and nail. It's not a big ramp, it's not explosive vegetation. Yeah,
1: it's like the tutor that, it's like a tutor that's putting the land into play, the, and the real the real game plan is getting the lands into play in anyway, and then you're also leaving this 6-6 trample behind that they have to deal with, so you're setting up your big game plan while leaving behind, like, a giant roadblock that if they don't deal with it, it's actually going to win also for you.
0: How have you felt about Field in uh, field of the Dead in these, uh, these cube settings? I know that card was in the Vintage Cube for a while, and there was, like, the Golos meme era, but, like, have you liked it, or is it just too far gone?
1: Uh, that's one of the cards I would have mentioned that's in the MTGO cube that doesn't really make sense to me. <laughs> I think it's just, like... So if you your goal is to have seven different lands into play and then you get a two two as your payoff, like if I have seven different lands in play, I should be able to figure out a better way to win than make two twos at that point.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so land combos not fueled to the dead. Cool. Yeah.
1: I'm sure it's I'm sure it's good sometimes. I just feel like most of the time I see it in a deck, even if the deck is well set up to play it, it's like what are, what's your goal here? You're gonna like make the game go so long that you have eight lands in play and like somehow survive that long, but then also make these two twos relevant at that point in the game. It's just a tall order.
0: That is a lot to ask. Um, I think yeah, that about does it for everything I had. Is there anything you feel like I missed? Uh, anything you want to plug in terms of cubing uh, moving forward?
1: Um, well, I'm still working on... I've been running this, like, Alpha Frog Invitational show. Uh, I haven't done an episode recently, but I have uh, big plans in the future for that, so stay tuned. Um, uh, the LSV videos will continue until morale improves. So, if you haven't been checking out his YouTube channel, definitely, uh it's a good spot to find some sweet cube content. I'd recommend that. Um, Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I got.
0: Cool. And uh, where can people find you for, you know, continuing cube content?
1: Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. So yeah, you can find my Twitter. It's alpha frog, but it's spelled weird. It's a L F a P H R O G.
0: Yeah, you just swap the F's. Very easy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, and then uh, you mentioned the Alpha Frog Embies. Are you? Is it that just kind of like the individual players streaming those? Do you have a central place that those are streamed, or is it? Uh,
1: future information on that will be announced hopefully soon. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah, like I said, big news. Can't really talk about it yet. Hopefully everything works out
0: and uh okay yeah we we will keep posted uh as we watch your your twitter or someone's cube video where they suddenly mention oh yeah this is happening uh relatively soon uh yeah, yeah yeah
1: next next few weeks hopefully we'll have some news about the next show yeah awesome
0: yeah it's you know great to have you on uh thanks for chatting about that it's really good to you know talk to someone who is there's a lot of a lot of cube content focuses on Uh, a different side of things and like someone who's just like actually in the trenches playing cube and trying to win in cube in an environment against people who are trying to win is it feels like very, you know, a very useful perspective that is often hard to find. So yeah, really glad to have you on. um, And thanks for stopping by for sure.
1: Oh, I do have, I do have one more plug if you don't mind.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: I, uh, I offer coaching. So if you would like coaching, hit me up.
0: Is that just sort of, uh, is that through any of the platforms or just, you know, you kind of dodge that whole uh, ecosystem and do it uh, via independent setups?
1: Yeah, just DM me on Discord or Twitter. My Discord handle is AlphaFrog, but
0: it's spelled the, the normal way. The normal way. Alpha <laughs> with the, the the P's in the right spot. Yeah. Or the F's in the right spot? Okay. Both, both are in the correct spot. Cool. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for having me on. This uh, is really fun. Yeah, really fun to talk to you about that. And yeah, uh, so glad to have you. Uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter uh, at Dominaria underscore pod. You can find us also on Patreon at uh, Dominarias underscore judgment. Uh, Dom is on Twitter and I am on Twitter, uh, ARMLX and uh, Domin Harvia. Uh, we're writing on SCG for Dom, uh, CFB for me. We write relatively regularly as things go these days. Uh Dom is on this podcast, I swear, relatively regularly. Uh he'll be back next week where we will be talking probably a lot about KubeCon and then uh maybe some uh Lost Cavern spoilers. Uh you know, as things always go, we wing it as uh as it goes. Um but until next time, see you then.